Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Today on the first Policy Forum Pod for the new year, we're asking the question, are universities failing society? Universities have long been valued for their role in creating knowledge, knowledge which can hopefully be used for the betterment of society and humankind. But today, we live in a post-truth world. And it's an age of social media. We're constantly flooded by opinion and information, some of it ill-informed. Off the back of Brexit, Donald Trump, clickbait and fake news, the Oxford Dictionary even chose post-truth as the word of 2016. As we kick off 2017, and what will surely be a big year for policy and politics, a good question is whether the best ideas of our scholars and academic institutions are actually cutting through. Are they influencing policy decisions and making an impact on society? Before Christmas, I was delighted to have a chat to two experts to answer these questions. Professor Asit Biswas from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore and James Gigaha, an Associate Lecturer at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. James is also the editor of the excellent academic blog on Southeast Asia Politics and Society, New Mandala. Asset was at ANU to deliver a public lecture which marked the second birthday of PolicyForum.net, a video of which you can find online, and there's a link in the description of this pod. In the discussion you're about to hear, we looked at the role and responsibilities of academics, how academia can better influence policy, and the push to publish in highly ranked journals. Here's what they had to say. Asset, James, many thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, it's a real pleasure. Asset, your talk is entitled, Why Our Universities Are Failing Us. Can you tell us why you think this is the case? There are many reasons, uh, but the main, main ones are the type of research we're doing often focuses on how elegant is our analysis, not how it can be applied. So that's the first. We often do not look into the real problems, and that is because of the incentive structure of the universities, all universities. We have to publish as a professor, especially young professors trying to get a tenure, you have to publish in high-impact journals. And if you want to publish in high-impact journals, the elegance of the theory take precedence over application. So many of the issues, the real-world issues, you can't come out with elegant theories. So they are keen on developing elegant analysis which could be published. So that, that is number one. Now, number two is the way the academic structure is set up, not only in Australia from what I've seen, all over the world. Basically, you finish your graduate studies, you do your master's or PhD, do a probably postdoc, and you stay in the universities. 
whole life you spend in the universities, you are in a bubble, university bubble. You don't know what is the people, what the people want, what are the solutions, what are the problems. And if those solutions, even if, uh, even if you have a good solution, if that can be applied in the real world. The next, the next is a complete disconnect between the professors and the global discourse on the policy issues of, of the problems. We don't take any, really any part and the complete disconnect with the policymakers. What happens is, even if you come out with a wonderful exposition of the problem, solution, no one in the policy level is even aware of it. I've been advising 19 governments at the ministerial and prime ministerial level. I'm sad to say, not one of the ministers I advise or prime ministers I advise have had time to read one book the last four years. One book. Very, they read very seldom. And what they read has to be in one or two pages. Very simple. It has to be written very simple. What's the problem? What's the solution? What's the benefit for them? What's the benefit for their party? All those have to be spelled out in no more than a couple of pages. And the academics who are extremely good at writing long papers do not know how to write a simple paper. My minister in Canada used to say, look, I'm a journalist. Uh, and he used to say, look, you are, you are supposed to be very brilliant and I'm equally supposed to be very stupid. So don't use any jargon which I don't understand because if you use a jargon, you lose me. I've got so many things on my mind and I learned from him that you have to speak the language of the politicians so that you can get your message to them. But in order to get the language of the politician, you must have access to them because they don't read anything. So either you must have access to the politicians or you must have access to the close confidants who advise the politicians. And that link is completely missing at all the universities. I had long discussions with professors at Harvard. I asked him, how many times have you been invited to Obama's White House to advise him? They were very mad at Obama. I said, they, they never invite you. They never invite you to the White House. And I asked him, maybe because you don't know how to explain his problems and solutions in an understandable language to him. So there's a, so many disconnects, and this is why what we do in academia really gets into in the public policy discourses or into real solutions. James, turning to you, I mean, those disconnects that Asset talked of there, those were some of the issues that were explored in the New Horizons seminar series that you co-convened, right? Can you tease out some of the, uh, some of the things that were brought up in that? Well, much like Asset has already brought um, up, the clear disconnect is that so much of our academic work and scholarship is still beholden to old ideas of status and relevance and impact, and it's not doing enough to get out to the real world, to policymakers, to politicians, to even the publics and the media that pay our taxes and fund our research. And throughout the series, over eight seminars now, we found the same refrain, that universities need to do more. One clear disconnect I think that also has come to the fore is that we're not taking advantage enough of the potential of digital disruption that uh, the 21st century offers universities. And I fear that much like media, we could be quickly left behind and left scrambling to be relevant uh, in a new way of doing things and thinking and communicating. Um, if handled correctly, uh, our digital disruption gives us the historic opportunities to change the way we research, the way we teach, 
the way we communicate that research. Uh, we think there needs to be more done in this, this space. Asset, I'd like to um, ask you about a couple of things that absorb a lot of thoughts and energies at, at modern universities. Global rankings and the drive to publish in highly ranked journals. Why is a focus on these a bad thing? Several reasons. Uh, universities these days, university administrators, have to chase global ranking because first, if, you're, if you go up in the ranking, you get more money from the government. So that's number one. Second, in order to attract right staff to, to the university and also the students, because one thing we're finding out now more and more, both good quality, high quality academic staff and students, they can go anywhere they want, anywhere. The world has become their oyster. So in order to attract them, the best only way, in fact, one of the best way is to increase your ranking. So they have a vested interest to increase your ranking. The problem is, how do you do the ranking? It is strange, we have th three main rankers of the universities. The same university which is ranked, say, number 12 in one ranking system, could be at number 62 in the other ranking system. Uh, so ranking is not a science. It's a very abstract art. But one thing is very common, and that is how many papers your staff of the university publish in high-impact journals. So that is primarily because one good reason. One good reason. That information is readily available. So you can intercompare it. But the question is, take in my field of water. The highest-ranking journal has six subscribers in India and all of 13 subscribers in China. This is for the highest-ranked journal Highest-ranking journal in the water field. So with two, for 2.6 billion people, we are talking 19 subscri subscription, uh, which is really, really nothing. So in academically, it is at the top. In reality, I checked uh, because I had to, about three or four years ago, uh, I chaired a committee. And they, they asked me very similar questions. So I went and asked the Indian Minister of Water, have you ever read water resources research? Water research. His answer is, what is water research? I told him it's a journal. I said, no, I've never heard of it. I asked the secretary, never heard of it. I asked the joint secretary, deputy secretary, never heard of it. Same in China. The other problem is, even if they've heard of it, at the university, because of our subscription system, all the staff and the student can access it free in your computer. You don't have to, these days my students don't go to the library. Most of my students have never been to the NUS library, a wonderful library. If it is not on, on your digital system, it doesn't, the knowledge doesn't exist because some of the books are not, on, on the, not available electronically. They refuse to go to the library. But the problem is, if you want to subscribe to this journal, it's enormously expensive. For university, it's not a problem, but for others, it's a big problem. And on top of it, it's written, in order to get it published, you have to be so erudite and you have to be so much jargon that no intelligent in individual would will be willing to read it. And we have done some work that an average scientific paper is read by 10 people anywhere in the world, including the author. 
And if you're going to change the world, that's not the way to do it. I mean, those sound like disastrous figures when you're considering the in potential influence that academia can have or mm-hmm. could have over policy making. Is that how you read it? Is it disastrous? It's complete disastrous because what is the usefulness of doing research? Advancing knowledge is one. But if, like Confucius said, the essence of knowledge is having it to use it. So if you have the knowledge, and that is of no use to anybody in the real world, why are you doing so much research, which the public is paying for it, but they are not seeing any benefit in their way, their way of living, quality of living, uh, economic, their economic benefits. So wh- why would the public continue paying for the universities in one way or another? So we have to do some serious thinking in the 21st century. What are the objectives of the universities? Is it to do research? Is it to do st- prepare the students from a rapidly changing world, neither of which, in my view, were doing well. I imagine that research that you did probably came as a a shock to a lot of people. How has the academic community responded to those kind of findings that show how um, little read their research is? Uh, Frankly, many of my colleagues say, we don't dispute with your findings but do you have to go public with those results? And that, that is a problem. So in, in private, they discourage you to write those. And for whatever reasons uh, in my life, I've been lucky enough to get involved with... Uh, my mentors have been all politicians. A lot of them have been politicians. My early mentor was a remarkable lady. She was the Prime Minister of in India, Indira Gandhi. You may like her, you may dislike her. I mean, no Indian I know of has a, doesn't have a view on her, either very positive or very negative. I know the lady. She's a remarkable lady. And I remember 1973, which changed my life. I was at that time the Director General of Government of Canada's Environment Canada. And I had a meeting in Delhi, so I went to, as usual, when I'm in Delhi, I used to go and drop on her. Uh, after a while, she said, look, you want to talk about water. I have to tell you, I have no interest in water. Absolutely not. I was horrified how a prime minister of a country can say she has no interest in water. I said, look, water is very important. I said, prime minister, with due respect, water is very important. People need water to survive. You need water to produce food, which people must eat. You need water to generate energy, which people need. She looked at me like a, like a grandmother and said, I'm the Prime Minister of India. I have no interest in means. Only thing I'm interested in is ends. And I asked her, what do you mean by means and ends? He said, what I'm interested in is ends. And what are the ends? I'm interested in how do we improve the standard of living of the Indian people? How do we reduce the poverty? How do we improve their quality of life? Those are the end I'm looking for. Water, energy, these are simply means. So if you're talking of efficient water management, uh, water pricing, etc., I have no interest. These are simply means. However, if you want to structure your discussion, how water can be 
an engine for re- regional development, how water can be used for employment generation, how water can be used to improve the health of my people. That's a completely different category. If you want to discuss water management, my secretary will call the Ministry of, Minister of Water, I th- and she said he may not be that interested discussing on the efficient water management side, but we'll certainly make an appointment for you to see the chairman of Central Water Commission, the, the top, top person. And since my people will make the appointment, you'll get red carpet treatment, the boss and his, uh, oh, everyone will be there. And I realized then and there, if you want to influence politicians, you have to talk a different language. And every, t- every time since then, what I've been talking about, not how to manage water efficiently, but how water can be used as a catalyst for development, economic development, how it generates energy. And in the meantime, I, you, I show that if you do all this improvement, the chances are you'd be re-elected, your party would be re-elected, and it, which means you can continue to be a minister, which is often the objective of most of the politicians. So you, we academics speak, we think everybody can understand the importance of scientific development. No. You have to put in a simple language in the way what is important to the politicians and the senior civil servants so that they get the message. And that we seldom do. I mean, I'd like to bring in James here because talking of sort of simple language and getting points across in a succinct way that's understandable to a broad audience. I mean, it strikes me that one way that academics are trying to reach out and influence beyond little red peer-reviewed journals are online platforms like New Mandala, like Policy Forum. Um, James, do you think universities are suitably recognising this type of activity? The the short and sad answer, Martin, is no. Um, And I say no because universities don't necessarily reward academics or scholars' work in this space. Uh, Quite frankly, there are no incentives for academics to write an article on a blog post or a blog platform. Um, Instead, they are encouraged to do the normal peer review process. Um, So when there's no incentive to engage in this space, you find that getting engagement in this space extremely difficult. It's often those who believe in the broader uh, objective and bigger picture that will engage. I also think that there's a little bit of a culture among some of our academic colleagues and peers to think of writing in this format as somehow dumbing down your ideas, as though it's somehow no longer intellectually rigorous. Uh, which I think is also a sad way of viewing this. It may not seem intellectually rigorous, but it certainly shows a lot of street sense and wisdom to be able to communicate in various formats to various people. That isn't to say that it is not recognised or rewarded here at ANU. At ANU, we are lucky that we have a rich tradition and history of academic blogging, which is broadly supported among the various institutions and faculties and even at the highest level. But across the sector, you find that academics are not rewarded for this. It won't help them win promotion, as it currently stands. It won't help them keep a job. And as we've seen in some spaces, when academics are making controversial comments in public, it can even lead to them losing their jobs, which is also a worrying development. So what are your thoughts on all of that? Uh, I give you only a few comments of my colleagues when I was at Oxford. One told me, writing in the media, is beneath, quote-unquote, beneath my dignity. I'm a scientist, I'm a professor, 
I don't write in such mass media. I would never do that. The other one, the second one said, writing in mass media looks like activism to me. I write a lot of blog posts, primarily, and a lot of opinion pieces, primarily because that's the only way I can get my message across. Universities, sadly, not only do not appreciate that, they actually discourage you, saying that, basically, look, you wrote one piece every week. I could have, you could have written, instead of four, in a high-impact journal, 30-plus impact journal, you could have written seven, seven pieces in a high-impact journal, which would have increased the profile of the university quite a bit higher. So forget and accepting it, they actually discourage it. So what more could or should both universities and academics be doing to actually... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To get their research into policymakers' hands. How, how can universities, how can we flip that around so that universities do encourage those types of activities? Very difficult. We have to change the mindset. We have to change the incentive structure. But the other thing, when I was work, uh, when uh, Mrs. Gandhi was alive, and that the thing that impressed me, she's the one who started that every morning when she came to her office, there would be a two-page memorandum on her desk summarizing what the media said. That time there were no blogs, just what the media said and what BBC. She very explicitly wanted to know what BBC may have said about her about the party, about India, two-page. That process is still continuing in India, what she started. When I was with the government of Canada, Pierre Trudeau, a remarkable intellectual, he also wanted a summary of what is being said in the media. I have not known a single prime minister or minister who says that, forget every day, once a year I want on my desk a six-page summary of all the new developments in the way, in my field, in, I'm the minister of, let's say, water. Tell me what are the six, five or six, the most important developments that have happened in the year. I don't know a single minister who asks that or is even interested in that. So it's the question is, the main question we have to ask is, if you are really interested to increase the lifestyle of the people, use the research to improve the lifestyle of the people, first, you have to get it to the public arena, get to the attention of the people who make the decisions. And we are not going to do that by writing in a high-impact journal. James, you look like you had something to say there. I think there's one very clear thing that modern universities can do, and that's invest in online spaces. Um, forgive me for sounding like a Marxist, but we need to take back the means of production. Universities have handed the keys of their knowledge the blood, sweat and tears that goes into that knowledge production from our scholars to journals. Elsevier makes billions of dollars in profit each year. Most of its published formats are behind paywalls. If you want that open and accessible uh, for readers not to pay for that, you as a scholar must pay for that yourself. 
Uh, this seems to me, quite frankly, a ludicrous position to be in, particularly considering that much of our research, particularly here in Australia, is funded by the taxpayer. So universities can do one clear thing, stump up the cash to create public-facing portals that allow their academics to engage in both formats, whether it be the traditional peer-reviewed uh, journal, as well as shorter, pithier, accessible summaries of all that research and knowledge in those. I don't think it would take much. The barriers to entry are very low. Uh, and I think the results would be quick and exponential. You're absolutely right, James. The barriers to entry are right. But I would suggest another thing. For example, in Singapore, if I write a 800-page opinion piece in the State Times, which is the main newspaper of Singapore, most of, that, most of the time, before 4 p.m. that day, I get a call from the minister or from the permsec saying, ah, I like that one, or saying that 80% I agree, 20% I disagree, let's have lunch to discuss that. It never happens if I write many papers and books. It never happens when I don't write for the State Times. If I write a very critical article in the New York Times about any, any politi politician or any, any country, you see an immediate reaction, immediate reaction from that country, either positive or negative. Some say uh, sometimes negative, sometimes positive, but they're forced to react. I can write, I have written now 84 books, not a single prime minister or a minister or a senior bureaucrat I can tell you, has read those books or commented on the books. One article, one op-ed in the right journal, right media, you see immediate impact. And that is how you can get your message across. And that is what I'm trying to do. The, the reason when you told me to do all this, my objective is very clear these days. If I have an opportunity by which I can reach larger number of people, I'll go out of my way to grab that opportunity. So if I have to stay till one o'clock, and it, it, hap it happens, you have to develop good relations with the editor of the journals. And as the editor of the journals, they have said time limit on some stories. I can give you one example. A year ago, China Daily editor, the remarkable lady, she said, look, Ch China is having a big drought. Can you please write something about the drought and the impact on China, what, what's happening? I needed one week, in one week. Next day, I had another email from her. She said, look, it has started raining. You better send the article by today. If you can't send it by today, I'm afraid I can't use it until the next drought, which may be two or three years' time. So if you are an academic, you have to drop everything because only way you can get my message across in China is by going through China Daily. I dropped everything I sent to her. So we have to change our priorities. Before I came here, the State Times editor sent me some notes he wanted it by tomorrow. I said, I'll be arriving only tomorrow morning in Singapore, but I promise you by 12 noon, you'll have all the answers. So they have some time limits for whatever reasons, primary story deadlines. If you want to develop good relations with them, you have to meet those deadlines. And that means next time I want to place something with, with her, should look at it carefully because I'm doing her a favor when she needs it. And when I need something to be published, it may take two, three weeks because it depends on the storyline and the space, but she will publish it. So you have to develop a completely new type of relationships. Right now, most of the editors in Singapore 
or China or India, I have good relations with them, primarily because I react to the request as top priority. I drop everything. And that's the only way you can get your message across. I mean, that is quite different from the process of, you know, academic publishing, where you're talking about, you know, perhaps spending six months writing a paper, you're talking about a year for it to go through the peer review process before it actually appears. James, what do you think about all of that? I, I totally agree with Asad, and I think it comes also down to changing the culture and being nimble enough to take opportunity of the digital platforms that are now being made available to us. I think we need to train young scholars to think of media not as a burden or as beneath them or somehow intellectually um, weak. After all, journalism is the first draft in history and I would say that academia is its second draft and they go hand in hand and they should go hand in hand. So I think we need to look at these opportunities and be dexterous enough to take advantage of, of them as quickly and as frequently as we can. Mm. And that will happen, James, only if the incentive structure of the professors and the universities are changed. Instead of discouraging it, they have to actively encourage that. James, turning to you, recently ANU lost one of its most beloved academics, uh, Professor Des Ball, a man who was famed for his pioneering work, particularly looking at how you couldn't have a quote-unquote controlled nuclear war. Des, to many, was a great example of what an academic can be. He was both rigorous in his research, but also forceful in influencing public policy. Do you think universities are still breeding researchers like that? I would hesitate to say no categorically. I don't think that is the case. But unfortunately, I think there is less and less likelihood that we will see a Des Ball in Australia in the near future. And I say that because having the privilege of working with Des only for a short time, uh, but certainly a very influential time, he was known for his creative approaches. He was known for his creativity in the questions he asked and the way he went about trying to find answers to those questions. And the way that modern universities are structured with their emphasis on reporting to government, reporting to other organisations and even reporting to the sector itself through our notions of impact and relevance, I just don't think those creative spaces are as obvious or as available to younger scholars these days. And unfortunately, that means that we might not see someone like Des for um, many years to come. Asa, what are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think I completely agree with James that people like this, who, whom I do not know, you don't see them very often. And for whatever reason, they, go, they went to a different path, and that is an exception rather than the rule. And that is the sad part. We need more of those. How do you replicate those type of persons? And that is one of the major challenges. And again, it will only come if we start looking how universities are ranked globally, and then it will filter down. And so also one of the things I'm doing now is discussing with the ranking institutions why they should change their ranking order. And unfortunately, the universities which are at the top are not very keen about it because they may not come out very well. There's a co considerable resistance to change the parameters by which the universities are ranked. And that is bound to, I'm afraid that is going to come because right now, in order to rank a university, nobody's asking most 
important questions. Supposing, take the case of ANU, I don't know how you collect your data, but I'll be very surprised if you had data on each department, how long it took a graduate to get a job, what is their median salary, or five years down the line, ask that graduate of ANU, what do you think, did you get value for money for your education at ANU? And also, whatever we taught you, how relevant was it to you for your work li- working life? It's not only ANU, it's all universities are exactly in the same situations. And yet, the main job of the universities, in my view, one of the primary jobs, tasks, is to prepare the young generation, give them the work skill of the future. We don't ask, I don't know a single university that asks their main employers, what do you think of our student? Did, did we give them enough knowledge, background, thinking rationale, communication skill, as a result, they're immediately useful to you from day one? Or did you have to train them over the next two years so that they could be useful? So those are the type of things we need to take a look at very, very seriously. I'd say one more thing about Des and reflecting on his brilliant career. Uh, Of course, he's also known as the man who blew the lid on the US secret base Pine Gap in Australia. And so the reason I bring this up is because I just don't think it's just universities that are to blame for the current culture or predicament that we might find ourselves in. I think it is the funding priorities of governments and societies uh, in general. If someone were to expose a secret US military installation in today's uh, world, I don't think he or they would be celebrated, I think they would be shut down. And I've seen this uh, from my work time and time again on New Mandala. We've had scholars, not from ANU, but outside of ANU, write explosive pieces that are very, very important. Uh, and their universities have been quick not to back them, but to disavow them and distance themselves as quickly as possible. I think that's partly comes down to the fact that universities, particularly in Australia and the UK, find themselves in precarious financial position and that the available pot of money to fund them and the important work they do is shrinking all the time. I'd like to stay with this idea of sort of uh, academic activism. Perhaps if I can put this to you first, James, uh, Chris Hartley, uh, writing recently on New Mandala and indeed on Policy Forum, suggested that a measure of success for academics could be that they should, at least once in the career, make a dictator uncomfortable. Is that something you'd agree with? I would totally agree with uh, Chris Hartley. And as much as it's hard to swallow the thought of a dictator uh, casting their eyes your way uh, as a scholar, I think it is a noble and important objective. Um, Speaking from my experience on New Mandala and its 10 years of history, what made New Mandala famous was talking about the Thai royal family. You can't understand modern Thailand or its politics or its military without also talking about the royal family. Unfortunately, talking about the royal family can also put you in jail for a long time, up to 15 years. Citizens in Thailand do not have these platforms uh, available to them. Platforms like New Mandala provide an integral way of shining a light in dark places to help them better understand what is going on in their own societies and politics. And I find that this mission is even more acute now. If you look at the region of Southeast Asia, most of the 10 countries, uh, in terms of media freedom, are ranked at the very lowest rungs 
of the current ladder. So uh, academics like Chris, I applaud them and laud them and encourage them. There are risks, obviously. Uh, there are always some costs to pay, but I think it's an important endeavour to pursue uh, and I encourage anyone to do so. Asa, would you agree a uh, uh, responsibility of academics is to you know, make dictators uncomfortable? Uh, not only the dictators, but also the politicians uncomfortable by asking some hard questions. You know, Chris Hartley has been one of my students. We've written many things together. One, I think he's going to go places, and he has the potential to be the type of person you're talking about in this world. Many years ago, one of my mentors, he was the Director General of Food and Agricultural Organization. Very kind man, a Lebanese man, Edward Sauma. I went to see with, with him to see several ministers. And one day I asked him, why are you so aggressive with the ministers? Because in a private discussion, he's a very kind man. I, I, I told him, that's a side of you I never see. And he gave me a piece of advice. And that goes back to what Chris Hartley said. He said, from my perspective, if you want to get attention, if you want to get respect, if you want to be, get hard, then do the following. Treat the minister like a doorman, doorman like a minister. Both will remember you, both will respect you. And he said, the main problem with, Chris Hartle talked of the dictator, main problem with the ministers are, they have been told so many times by their flunkies and others looking for favor, that they are gods, they start believing they are gods. So if I go and talk to them something, the moment I leave the room, they have forgotten what we even discussed. However, the reason I'm aggressive and I look for the first opportunity, very early on, within the first two or three minutes, saying, I disagree with you completely. Because last 10 years, nobody has disagreed with him or her. And then they perk up. So you are not going to be the most popular person, but at least he, will listen to, he or she will listen to your message, what you have to say. And that's the only way you can get your attention. Well, we've, uh, we're coming drawing to the end of our discussion here. We've covered a, a wide range of territory. I, I think in general we've painted a fairly sort of gloomy outlook, though, for both academia and for universities and the role of, of both of those within the creation and influence of policy. Um, I'd, I'd like to finish on a positive note, if I can. Is, I'll throw this open to both of you. Is there any hope on the horizon? Are there any bright spots for, for the future of the sector? I am optimist by nature. I think there is no other choice but to go this way. It's just a question of time. My guess is it will take probably another five to six years before this becomes a mainstream issue, mainstream way of doing it. Already I can see a few people that are coming, but once they see the results, once they see, they see the university, see the implications, and once the rating agencies start changing the how the universities are ranked, things are going to change rapidly. It's just a question of time. Whether it'll take three years or six years, I don't know. But it is, it is coming. James, find a word to you. I would agree with Asit. I have hope for three quick reasons. The first is distinguished scholars of his nature are calling for change. And if people with their reputation, like Asit and others, are saying that we need to shake up the tree... I think the, sh the, the, the bowels will be shaken. Uh, I think the younger generation are hungry to engage in more public-facing works. Uh, they like to think that what they study each day and what they uh, commit their considerable intellect to actually does make a difference. 
And we're already seeing conversations along these lines about how we can better make an impact in the real world through our scholarship at the highest levels of policy. There's a long-standing conversation in the UK now about impact and how that might be measured. That conversation is starting here in Australia. Um, throughout the Horizon seminar, I've been struck by just how many Australian academics are having exactly this type of conversation on campuses every day. Uh, so I do have hope. Um, I agree with us that it may be uh, half a decade or possibly a decade, but change is coming uh, and change is welcome. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both, James Gigger, Asip Biswas. It's been, uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Fascinating stuff and a huge thanks to Asset and James for taking the time to share their views on these important issues. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We are really interested in getting your thoughts on what we've talked about. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. If you're feeling generous, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds or so and doing so will be a huge help to us in getting the word out about the series. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. You can also find there a number of articles by Asset, as well as the article by Chris Hartley, which we discussed on the panel on why academics have a responsibility to make dictators feel uncomfortable. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod. Until then, cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.